Welcome to episode 190 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Nicole. She is the donation button on our website. Thank you, Nicole, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who lived or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Today, I want to share with you an open talk by Sherry S. that I found value in and enjoyed listening to. One of the things that struck me, and maybe because I'm recording this on the day before Valentine's Day, was the ways in which she found love in recovery. She found love for her father, love for her spouse, and love from people in the program. And I wanted to read a little bit of uh, something one of our ministers shared with us about Valentine's Day and about love. The problem with a holiday like Valentine's Day is that it often celebrates only one expression of the essential force of love in our lives, romantic love. It ignores the many other equally important expressions, whether it's a parent holding the tiny hand of a sick child, a friend who gives you a warm drink and invites you to sit down at the kitchen table, the look of deep devotion in the eyes of an animal as it looks at its human companion, the neighbor who shovels the sidewalk without even being asked, the friend who stops you in the hall to ask how you are doing. These kinds of love are all worth celebrating. And I think I would add to her list the unconditional love of our higher power and the very special love that we find in our recovery program, sometimes from complete strangers who are able to share their pain, their strength, and their hope with you and, and understand yours and, and share that with you in love. So... With that as background, here's Sherry. My name is Sherry, and I am a grateful recovering member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Al-Teen. Hi, Sherry! Wow. Um, you know, I told people I was coming to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, just because I like saying it. It was so much fun. <laughs> and um, I wanted them to be impressed, because I'm actually now an international speaker. LAUGHTER Nobody was impressed, but it sounded, you know, so intelligent. I'm an international speaker now. Um, you know, in the States, Canadians have a wonderful reputation. I don't know if you know that, but you do. And I, I called home and I said to my husband, oh, everybody is so nice. And he said, of course they are. They're Canadians. <laughs> and it's true. It's very, very true. Um, I have just had a fabulous weekend. I really, really have. I've enjoyed every single moment except perhaps this one. But... Um, <laughs> I have just, I've met such wonderful, wonderful people. You're just terrific. It's, it's like coming home. And I was saying to Kitty just a few minutes ago over dinner that, to me, um, life is about the people you meet. And the people that you meet can be blessings to your life. And I have been so blessed this weekend by all of you. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to fit you all in my suitcase. I am busy manipulating and controlling in my mind, seeing how many of you I can get to come and speak in Virginia. Um, and uh, But I would love to just take you all home with me. I just... I wish that the people that I love back home could experience the love of you all because you're really very extraordinary. Thank you so much for asking me to come. And what can you say about a country that has money called loonies and toonies? I mean, <laughs> I like that, you know, because I'm kind of loony and toony most of the time, so I just, 
I think that's kind of special. I really do. And I've had the privilege of staying with, with, um, with Karen and with Richard. And, and Karen tonight, is she's so lovely. I mean, she's just a, such a lovely person. And, and she has on black pants and brown shoes. <laughs> Lana promised to rub my neck if I did. <laughs> and Lana's been a, she's been a treasure. And I, I don't know why I'm even standing up here because Kitty pretty much told my story last night. Well, there's a few, you know, a few differences, but, but she really did. So much of what Kitty said was my life experience. So it's just kind of like if you weren't here last night, um, she and I share a whole lot of things in common. And, uh, and it's like having a sister instantly. And I'm an only child, so I get, as, I try to get as many sisters and brothers by choice as I can. I certainly got a lot of them here. Uh, my home group is the Friday Night Serenity Al-Anon Family Group in Newport News, Virginia. And if you happen to be in Virginia, which, by the way, is a very lovely state, um, I hope you'll stop by and see us. Of course, if you're in Roanoke, you've got a five-hour drive, but hey. Um, and, and, um, and I am not southern-born, so if you're expecting to hear um, a nice, really charming southern accent, that's my husband, not me. Um, but I was reading this morning, I don't usually do this, but um, I opened up the Hope for Today Daily Reader, <clears throat> and I read today's reading, and I wanted to read it to you because I really think that if I read this, then I don't need to tell my story, and I can sit down and enjoy the rest of the evening and give Richard a heart attack. <laughs> this is today's reading. My father died long ago. For many years, I didn't think of him. When I started in Al-Anon, long-buried memories of his alcoholic behavior surfaced. I angrily thought of him as the drunk. I continued attending meetings, though, and started my step work. I prayed and talked with my sponsor. She listened gently and carefully, but she didn't say much. She gave me time and space. A few months later, my mother asked me to pick up a box of my belongings. I took the box home and opened it. Inside was my father's wallet. Here's the drunk's wallet, I thought, as I looked through it. Inside the wallet were a number of things, including old pictures. There were lots of them. Snapshots carefully trimmed to fit the plastic sleeves of the wallet. There was a picture of me and him on my prom night, another of me with our dog. There was a picture of his boat and a picture I'd taken at a football game. There were several pictures of him drinking with his buddies. He loved them, too. Suddenly, I saw my father apart from his alcoholism. He was a normal, everyday guy who had people and things he loved. All of my Al-Anon work, my studying and praying, all fell into place. I realized I was ready to forgive him. I cried long and hard, missing my father for the first time in years. He was no longer the drunk. Now he was just my dad. The thought for the day, I know I'm recovering when I can see the alcoholic in my life as a human being. Al-Anon has also given me my father in a new and wonderful way. It has helped me accept him as he was. He was sick, but also he was loving and he did the best he could. Um, I was lucky in a little different than this, this book um, states in that um, I got Al-Anon before I lost my father. I had Al-Anon for 10 years, and it did give me my dad back, and it's the greatest gift. It gave me my parents back, and I am forever indebted to the program of Al-Anon for doing that for me and for my family. Um, my parents um, were planning to get married, and my mother's best friend's mother said to her, Jeannie, are you ready? And my mother said, I just love Eddie, but he just drinks too much. And her best friend's mother said, oh, Jeannie, all Eddie really needs is a loving home and a good family, and he won't drink anymore. And, you know, it's just funny. That's sort of the same thing all of us have heard. Give him a loving home and a good family, and they won't drink anymore. And that's a really big white flag. If you're planning on marrying somebody that's, and somebody said that to you, 
just just run fast, just run real fast. Well, they got married, and it's a good thing they did because um, seven months later, my mother gave birth to a very large seven-pound preemie, and that was me. And uh, they took one look at me and went, whoa, this one's more than we can handle, and I'm an only child. And um, my parents, I want to tell you a little bit about my parents so you can get an idea of where I came from and what it was like. And that is that my, my dad was in the Army, and so I grew up all over in, in Army bases. And he was tall, and he was handsome, and he was dashing, and he was my hero. And um, everything I later learned through Al-Anon that I love in life, my father, a lot of it was my father's gifts to me. He loved music, and um, he was a musician, a beautiful singer. I later studied singing for almost 10 to 15 years. Um, he loved history. I love history, which is a good thing, because Virginians think they invented history. And now I live there. And, uh, and so we used to enjoy history together. He loved to read. We shared books together. All of the things that bring such value and meaning and beauty in my life were gifts of my dad. My mom, on the other hand, I found my mother to be boring. My mother was um, a telephone operator. She worked for the telephone company for 45, 40 to 45 years. And um, she worked hard and she was dull. And I remember thinking, I am going to get, you know, I'm going to get a good education and go to college and get a good job. And I never, ever am going to be my mother. And I used to love, uh, there's an A speaker, Chuck C., and he talks about a new pair of glasses. And that's what Al-Anon did for me. When I got to the doors of Al-Anon, it gave me a new pair of glasses. It enabled me to see, especially with my mom, the, my, my, ha my handsome, happy, dashing dad um, was an alcoholic who drank up all our money, and my boring mom worked at that job that she hated so that she could provide for our family. And I began to see things in my life differently. Um, when I was six years old, I remember this night like it was yesterday. When I was six years old, my father came home drunk. And I remember sitting in the kitchen, and I remember him staggering in, and I knew he was drunk. And I have no idea how a six-year-old knows that, but I did. And I've heard people say, well, my kids were young, they don't remember my drinking. Oh, yes, they did. Because I remember it just like yesterday. And he staggered around the kitchen, and he wasn't particularly ugly that night, but he was definitely drunk. And when he, my mother got him to bed, like good Al-Anon women will do, put them to bed, she got him to bed, and when she came back in, I said, Mom, was Dad drunk? And she said, Oh, no, he's just not feeling very well, and he'll be fine in the morning. And um, what I didn't realize at that point was the white elephant was now, a pink elephant, was now in the middle of our living room. We didn't talk about that. You know. So... Um, alcoholism came to live in our family, and it was like the fourth person. There was my mom, my dad, me, and the old granddad bottle. You know, some people have grandfathers, I had granddad. And, you know, I think that one of the ways we can tell we're so sick is that our days began to be um, like a barometer. The, the, the old granddad bottle was like the barometer in our lives. You know, the day was dependent upon the level in the old granddad bottle. If the level stayed the same, well, my God, we were going to have a good day. But the further down that level went, the worse our day was going to be. And so everything revolved about a bottle of booze in the, in the closet. Everything revolved about that. Um, I knew my parents loved me. I had no doubt about that. They were very, very um, adoring parents, and they told me over and over they loved me. But I remember hearing one time from a, a minister, a well-meaning minister, that um, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And so I decided I must be a bad people because um, so many bad things were happening in our family. And so I thought that any little indiscretion I did 
my father's drinking was um, sort of like a vendetta against anything that I had done wrong. So if I did something wrong, Dad would be drunk. I mean, there's always – it was never the, the chair in the living room, Ron. It was the moon. You know, the moon was full. The moon wasn't full. The moon was going to be full. It was you – know, there was always some sort of reason why my dad drank. So um, I really, really thought at that point that I was a bad person. I was like seven or eight years old at that time. Um, my dad – my mother was a telephone operator, like I said, and uh, she worked odd hours. And somehow, when my father was taking care of me in the evenings, he didn't drink. And I'll never forget that. Um, he was a very, very good dad. He just had really bad moments. And, of course, those bad moments began to get more and more frequent as the alcoholism progressed. But those new pair of glasses, when I got into Al-Anon, allowed me to look back on my childhood and see that I really, really did have a very good childhood. It just had those really bad moments. Um, there was fighting in the household, a lot of fighting. And as I got older, the fighting changed. It wasn't between my dad and my mom. The fighting was between my dad and me. And, and what would happen is he would come home drunk and my mom would be working at this point now. I'm in my teen years and he did drink when I was home then. And, um, he would get in my face and he would yell and I'd get in his face and I'd yell back and I was so angry. And he would smack me or hit me and then, I had these incredibly long, long nails, and I would just take my hand, and I would just rake his face with my nails. And the next morning, what you get after a fight like that is you wake up, and, and he's sitting sick as a dog at the, at the kitchen table, and he's got these the scars of my shame on his face from my nails, and I have bruises on my face. And when I got into the doors of Al-Anon, in those days, they weren't nice. We're much nicer than we used to be. When I came into Al-Anon, they were mean. And they would, and, and this one lady in my home group in, in New Jersey would say terrible, terrible things to me. She didn't understand what a victim I was and how precious I was and how pitiful I was. And, and she would say horrible things to me like, stop volunteering for the violence. And I was in shock. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, Sherry, um, there must come a point um, in time when your father comes home drunk that you can leave. She said, why don't you try leaving next time instead of fighting with him? And I thought, that isn't going to work. We'll see about that. So I'm going to prove her wrong. So the next time my father came home drunk and it got kind of nasty, he went into the bathroom and I picked up my pocketbook and I left. Guess what? It worked. Because the next morning, I don't have bruise on my face. He doesn't have my little attractive gifts on his face, and the rake marks down his cheek. And all of a sudden, that simple gesture I learned in Al-Anon changed the dynamics in my house. No more was that violence happening because I left. And see, I didn't leave because I thought, you know, he needed me to be there to keep him from you know, hurting himself. I'm hurting him, he's hurting me. My God, what a stupid thought that was. And I have learned in this program that it's the simplest things that we're told to do that work so effectively. But because I was so damn smart, I thought they couldn't possibly work. But because I was so stubborn, I would try them just to prove to you you were wrong. And of course you weren't. But immediately things began to change. And that's what Al-Anon does for us. We take simple things and they make miracle, miracle changes in our lives. So anyway, my idea of how to get um, out of this situation was I was really smart, or at least I thought I was. I don't think I'm very smart now. I found out what I am is I can really memorize things good. So if I take a test, I can regurgitate anything back. And because... I'm an Al-Anon and a people pleaser. I will tell you exactly what you want to hear. So I would you know, write these essays just exactly like the teacher wanted to you know, hear. 
and I would get good grades. And that was my ticket out. I was going to get good grades. I was going to go to a good college. And I never, ever, ever was going to marry an alcoholic. Never. So I proceeded in my little plan. And, um, of course, we're still hiding my dad, you know, because as I was saying to somebody, I said to Rhonda, I said to someone, I said, you know, I heard about men saying, how, and women saying how wonderful and how, how smart they were that they could hide a bottle. You know, they used to hide bottles from their family. <laughs> we hide live drunks. <laughs> you know, try that, guys. You know, for all you guys in there, give that a shot. You know, just hiding a full-blown drunk, it's a challenge to do that. And we, we did a pretty good job, at least I thought we did. And then when I was 20 years old and in college, my father hit a school bus, and it made the front page of the paper. And fortunately, there was only a few kids on the bus, and they weren't hurt. My dad was, was pretty badly banged up, but um, he hit a school bus, and, and, and all of a sudden, somehow, without the program at that point, I knew, I knew that the jig was up, and there was a small sense of relief. I didn't have to hide the alcoholic anymore. He had pretty much outed himself right on the front page of our hometown paper. And it was funny. I had a lot of friends, and a lot of friends really loved my dad, and they continued to love him. They knew instinctively that my father was an alcoholic, and they knew that Ed Fisher was a wonderful person. He was just a bad drunk. But when he wasn't, he was a terrific guy, and, and all my friends loved him. And most of them stayed behind me and my family, and those that didn't really weren't my friends to begin with. And, and I learned to let go of that instantly without the program. Amazing how that happened. My cousin, and his, my cousin had gone through a treatment center, and he and his wife came over and did what at that time um, was a 12-step call. And we don't do those anymore. And I really think that's too bad because they used to be wonderful things. Um, and it used to be just, you know, not all the time, but it was usually the alcoholic husband and wife. And they would come and talk to the husband and wife. And, um, and, and they would come and sit in your home and talk to you. And then, you know, they would try to get you to go to a meeting. And if you were really lucky, they would take the drunk with them and go, you know. And... And we don't do that anymore, and I think that's a real shame. I really do. Because an old-fashioned 12-step call was the way a lot of people got sober. It was a very personal interaction. And, but anyway, my cousin had gone to a treatment center, and so my father decided to go to a treatment center. And I think, no, I know, his motives were he was hoping to not have to go to jail, or at least go for less time. And so he went off to the treatment center. And um, as part of that treatment, you had 10 days of, you know, of um, detox, and then there was a 28-day program. And... Um, after that, they would let the family come. But you came and you saw counsel. And so mom and I went, and like I said, I was 20, and we sat down with the counselor individually. And I remember the counselor looking at me and saying, do you think you're crazy? Do you, do you feel insane? And I thought, oh, my God, how does she know? Because, see, in my family, there was this little family secret, and that was that my grandfather had three sisters, and all of them died in insane asylums. And so we all talked about, you know, the Fisher family trait of the Fisher women go crazy. And so my cousins and I thought, you know, it sort of had this sort of gothic romantic sound to it. We we're going to go nuts sometime soon, you know. And somewhere in our 40s or 50s, like right about now, I should be going crazy. Um, but that's what you were doomed to have happen to you. And it wasn't until very, very later on after my grandparents died that I found out that the Fisher women didn't go crazy. They were all alcoholics. And in my family, it's better to be crazy than to be a drunk. And so that's what they were. They were crazy. It wasn't, had nothing to do with it. It was all alcoholism, all alcoholism. And I said to the counselor, yes, I'm sure I'm crazy. And she said to me, well, what if we can help? And I said, oh, would you please? 
And part of the part of the treatment at that center was that you had to attend um, counseling meetings and you also had to attend Al-Anon meetings. So after I met with the counselor, my mother came back out from the counselor she met with, and we went off to our first Al-Anon meeting, and I walked in the door, and it was Easter Sunday morning, 1980. And that is my um, recovery date. And I walked into that meeting, and they were all cheery and smiling and happy. And my job was to make them all miserable, because clearly they didn't know how I had suffered. And I thought, these people are they're just sickening. And, they, and, and that went on for a, lot of, a long time in the first year or so, when I would walk in and I'd think, oh, here they are again, those sickening, sweet people, you know. And they would say things like, keep coming back and, Easy does it. And I think, yeah, you easy does it, you know, in, or in Jersey, up yours, you know. Um, but I knew I had to go, and, I, and you know, I'm a, good, I'm, I'm a good direction taker, and so you tell me I need to go, and I, and I started going. And I also went to this, this outpatient treatment where they mixed alcoholics with, um, with family members. And I was the first adult child to do this treatment. I was the experiment. Boy, did they have their hands full. I was the experiment. Because in those days, they didn't deal with the family. In total, they dealt with the spouse. So they wanted to see, you know, what they could do with me. And they did a really great job. They really, really did. Um, it was in those meetings that I learned to listen to alcoholic stories, and I began to have those little Al-Anon slips where I'd feel moments of compassion <laughs> and, 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 and moments of understanding. And... Um, my father's counselor one time said to me, you two are exactly alike, and I have no idea why you're not an alcoholic. <laughs> me either. <laughs> I just don't know. Although my husband says it's because, um, I'll, we talk about this, I, I will get a glass of wine, and I will sip it in front of my husband and his sponsor, and they get so antsy, and they're like, drink it, you're wasting it, it's evaporating, you know. <laughs> or like I said to my husband, I don't like the way it makes me feel after two glasses of wine, and he said, you're supposed to drink through that drink through that. But you know, it's that control thing. We don't want to do that. We don't want to lose control. So anyway, my mom and I started going to Al-Anon meetings together. And um, we made a deal. And the deal was, when we would go to an Al-Anon meeting, she was Jean and I was Sherry. And um, we would be two members of Al-Anon, not, not mother and daughter. And that we would not talk about things that each other had said in the meeting. We would not talk about things people had said in the meeting. We would respect the anonymity and treat each other as just fellow members, and my mother and I began to heal. And you see, I hated my mother because I could not understand why she would not get me out of that situation. I couldn't understand why when my father would pass out, it was my job to go over and see if he was dead. I used to go over and make sure that he was breathing, and then I would go report to her so she could come in the house. I could not understand why my safety wasn't first, and I was furious with her. And while I was in this treatment center, the counselor said to me, um, you cannot graduate out of this program. They would, like, vote you out. It was kind of, you know, it was, hooray. You know, it was like being voted off an idol, except this was supposed to be a good thing. Um, and the group decided when you could go. And he said, you cannot go until you make amends to your mother. And I said, I will not. And he said, you will, too, if you have to stay here till you're 90. <laughs> and, it, you know, after a little while now and on, it occurred to me, and someone said to me, in order for you to be forgiven, you need to forgive. It's the bridge you must cross. You cannot burn it for your mother. And that's what I had to do. And I'm so glad I did, because my mother is just the funniest person. And I had missed that all those years. She looks like Mrs. Thurston Howe III. <laughs> my sponsor calls her lovey. And she has my voice, except which when I used to live at home, my boyfriends would call and she'd fake them out. Oh, God, that wasn't good. But um, 
instead, of, she's not quite like me. She talks like this. She's got this voice, you know. And when she was a telephone operator, people used to call. Guys would call to hear her talk, you know. She was a cheap, you know, one eight hundred call or one nine hundred call. And she's funny, funny, funny. But I had missed this woman all my life, and I am so grateful that I was was so privileged to to get to know my mom through the benefits and the graces of Alan. Um, and, and used to, I, I have been blessed. I have been able to speak in a number of places. And when she was in better health, she would travel with me. We had such a good time being together. We really, really did. And um, what a gift you've given me. What a gift, my mom. So we went to two meetings a week. And I did two years in Al-Anon. And I did, they did let me out of the treatment center after about nine months. I, they gave birth to me and let me go. And um, I graduated with college, from college. I had graduated from high school with honors. And, of course, I had to graduate from college with, with honors. And me and my ego went to Virginia to get a job. And uh, my ego and I are very, very big. And my ego at that time was based all on how smart I thought I was. So I went to Virginia, but one of the best things I did was I wasn't there more than a couple of weeks when I found my first Al-Anon meeting there. And I went in, and they read the preamble. I don't know if you do that, but we read a preamble every meeting. And it was like exactly like the one up at home, and I knew I had come home. I knew I was home in Al-Anon. Now, the opinions that are expressed here are surely the ones that are given them to you, and that's me. So you can take what you like and leave the rest. Um, but I'm not going to tell you how I did Al-Anon for a couple of years. I do Al-Anon good, and then I did Al-Anon bad, and now, and now it's the bad part. So I'm going to tell you how to do Al-Anon bad. What I did was I went to meetings, and I treated it like the Rotary Club. I went in, I said what you, I thought you wanted to hear, um, you know, and I, I smiled, and I said all the appropriate things, and then I went home. I did not get a sponsor. I was not working the steps. I did not go to meetings after meetings or coffee. I did not do any of the things you're supposed to do. And I've heard people say, just come and sit in the meetings and you'll get it. And I kind of sort of beg to differ. You really do need to um, work the steps. You really do need to get a sponsor. And in my opinion, you really do need to do service work because you cannot get better without the three legs of the, of the stool of, of the triangle of Al-Anon. Unity, service, and recovery. You just cannot do it. And I, and I was living proof of that. Because you see, there was this, um, there was this guy I worked with, and he looked like my dad, and he had big sad eyes. And he looked kind of like a wounded deer, and he needed somebody. I've heard it said that there's nothing you can say better to a woman qualifying for Al-Anon than, I need you. You could say anything at all. There's nothing more sexually satisfying than, I need you. <laughs> You say that to a woman, and she is yours forever, you know. And I've heard, you know, alcoholics saying on the dance floor, they just waltz up to that girl and say, sugar, I need you. And, and instantaneous love, you know, just oozes out of us. And this man needed me. Now, if I'd been doing the program I was supposed to be doing with the sponsor and the service and, you know, going to meetings after meetings and working the steps, I would not have chosen this person. Because he sat at my kitchen table, and there was a nearby hospital that had a treatment program, and they sent up a mailing out to different, you know, out to, you know, occupant, and I am an occupant, so I got one. And it had a picture of a hand chained to a glass on the front of that pamphlet. And he looked at that pamphlet and he said, I feel just like that. And if I'd been working my program, I'd have been out of there. Instead, and it took me years to realize this, but I remember thinking to myself, I couldn't fix my dad, but I will fix you. Because see, my dad did go through the treatment center and he did say, um, some, for some time sober, but then he went back out. And that was to be the pattern of my dad for the rest of his life. He never could keep, he could never get sobriety. He would get it for just a little while and then go back out. He never did get sobriety. But I thought, well, here's my chance. 
you know, after I'm an Al-Anon, I've got the tools now, I'm ready to go. I'll fix this one. So anyway, um, the problem with, with this gentleman was that he was extremely, extremely violent. And I've heard it said that uh, alcoholism is a fatal disease, and I believe that with all my heart. I also believe that people who don't get to our program will also have a fatal disease and die because we get into a car with a drunk while they're drinking. Sometimes we get into fights and we get killed. Sometimes we kill them. But either way, we're going to die a terrible spiritual and psychological and physically lonely death until we get to these doors. And I was dying with this man because, you see, I couldn't tell my friends in Al-Anon. What am I going to tell them? I'm getting beaten up on a regular basis. I failed again at something else. I can't do that. So I told nobody. Now, it turns out lots of people knew, duh. But um, I, I, I just couldn't tell them. And, and he would even do things like lock me up for the weekend, literally lock me in the bedroom. Nice man. Terrible drunk. And uh, so I, you know, I couldn't, I had lots of reasons to leave, but I just couldn't do it until he started working out of town and I had the opportunity to go to a Bruce Springsteen concert. Now let me tell you, if you're from New Jersey and you get a chance to go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, you go. And he told me I couldn't go. Well, by God, I was going. And I got to tell you, the last time I spoke was in New Jersey. And when I said that, the whole room went into, yeah, you know. You guys are a wee bit quiet for that, but that's all right. <laughs> they understood. And so I said, well, the hell with you. I'm going. And I said, and you need to get out. Because by that time, somehow, his socks were in my drawer. And I've always said it's not sex that, that cements a relationship. It's socks. Because... When their socks are in your drawer, they're there to stay. <laughs> and his socks had been in my drawer a long time, and there he was. So I told him he had to come in and get his socks out of my drawer, and he had to leave. So he was working in Washington, D.C., which is about three hours away. And he's, I told him that, and he was going to come in late that night and get his stuff and go. Well, I, what made me think he would do that? I have no idea. But uh, I decided to draw a bath and take a nice hot bath and just kind of relaxed before he arrived and unfortunately he got there early and the bath tub god bless you the bath water was drawn and he came through that door and i to this day have no idea what happened but somehow we ended up in a physical fight and he got me in that bathroom and he tried to drown me in the bathtub and he would put my head under and then he'd bring me up and i and i was fighting with all i had to try and get away from this man and he put me down under and he'd bring me back up and i remember at one point thinking this is the stupidest way to die can't believe this. And something happened, and I decided to kind of go limp and quit fighting him, and he pulled me up and he let me go. And so I told him that um, we needed to talk and that I was going to go get us some iced tea, some sweet tea, because in the South, sweet tea settles everything, and I was going to get some tea, and we would sit and talk. And I left him sitting there, and I, and I had on a flannel shirt and nothing more than that, but it was a long flannel shirt. And... Um, I went out the living room, and instead of turning, left to go into the kitchen. For some reason, that night, I had left my purse and my keys by the door. I never did that, but that's where they were. So instead of going left out into the kitchen, I went right. I grabbed my pocketbook, my keys, and I took off. And I called some friends from a phone booth. It was January 6th. I'll never forget it, January 6th. It was freezing cold. It was sleeting. And in Virginia, that means it was probably about 40 degrees Fahrenheit, but it was cold. And, um, and I'm standing there in a soaking wet you know, flannel shirt. And they came and got me, and I had to do things to take care of myself. I had to, to put out, a, you know, I had to put out a, a warrant against him, and I had to, And the police officer who took my information said to me, "Lady, I am very scared for you. You are in a very bad place." And that got my attention. 
Not good enough, though, because then he left, and then there was this other guy. But anyway, um, the next gentleman I dated was not an alcoholic, but his parents were. <laughs> and God bless him. Jesse was a really, really nice man. He was a very, very nice person. But my claws were so stuck into him that that man went to Europe for two years, and he didn't come, I mean, for two weeks, and he didn't come back for two years just to get away from me. And um, right after he left, I lost my job. And now everything that had defined me was taken away. I didn't have a man, and I didn't have a job, and I didn't know what to do. And I was scared. So um, I went through a terrible, terrible depression. And I talk about, I, he, Richard mentioned his dog and his two cats. I had this little cat, and she was black, and she looked like a bowling ball with fur. She was round. And God bless her, there were times when I really thought she was God's angel because I thought nobody, no one else knew about what was happening and no one else could possibly love me. And this little cat would lay in my lap and purr and I would just hold her and cry. My best friend came down to see me and I put on a good front because I am a good Alan on person. I can do that, you know. Uh, I can put on a great front. And I put on a really good front for her and we had a great time. But when I was getting ready to take her to the airport, she said, she sat down and um, she said, I'm not leaving because I'm really, really worried about you. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I've never seen you so depressed in all my life. And I want you to call your doctor, and I want you to get some help. And see, what she didn't know was besides holding the cat, all I was doing was I was going to the store and getting coffee and cigarettes and cat food. And I would come home, and I would get up and feed the cat and smoke a lot and go back to bed. And that was pretty much what I was doing day in and day out. But somehow she knew me well enough to know I was in a bad way. So while she was there, I made an appointment with the doctor, and he agreed to see me the next day. Actually, it was, uh, he asked if I, if I could hold on for two days. That's right. He told me the day after. Uh, and, and I said, I can hold on. And I got there, and I sat, and so I got to the airport, and I, I got there, and I sat down with him two days later, and I just, just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, and he kept handing tissues to me and handing tissues to me. And it was all over. He said to me, you know, you really are depressed. He said, and you've got lots of good reasons to be. And I thought, well, there's a thrill. And um, he said, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you something for that. So I launched into the, oh, no, 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 my father's an alcoholic. Apparently you weren't listening to me. You don't know. You don't understand. I don't take drugs. I don't do drugs. You know, two glasses of wine, that's my limit, blah, 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 blah. And he said, you know, I'm just going to give you a really mild antidepressant, and it will help you. And we give it to kids who wet the bed, too. And I thought, well, that problem will be solved. I didn't know I had it, but now I won't wet the bed either. And, um, and he said, but you know, I heard you say that you're a member of Al-Anon. And I said, not a very good one, apparently. And he said, um, how many meetings do you go to? And I said, I go to one a week. And he said, aren't they free? <laughs> Told you I was so smart. Um, and, and I said, yeah. And he goes, you know, if I were you, I'd go to as many meetings as I possibly could. And he said, and see me in a month and come back and we'll talk about how you're doing. And so that's what I proceeded to do. I went to every meeting. If the door was open, I was there. I didn't have a man. I didn't have a job. What else did I have to do? You know, so I was at meetings all the time. And I began to feel better. But see, it was one of those things again. Free meetings? I mean, how good can they be? I'll pay my doctor $85 to have him tell me to go to the free meetings, you know. And, and after a while, it began to work, and I began to feel better. And I went back to him in a month, and he took me off the anti-bedwetting medicine. And... Um, <laughs> And I told him I was going, and he said, how many meetings are you going to? I said, every single chance I can. And he goes, keep it up. And so I did. Um, there, I, there was a Sunday morning AA meeting, and they had started this meeting because they wanted to have an AA meeting with Al-Anon participation. So it was an open AA meeting. It was not an Al-Anon meeting. I want to be clear about that. It was an AA meeting. But I was like the charter member. 
and you know, precious and pitiful, here I come. And um, so I went. And there I met three really great people. Two of them were dual members, uh, Bill and Joan, and, and a gentleman named Ed who was an AA member. And Bill and Joan and Ed were all a great deal older than me. I was in my late 20s, and they were probably, my God, they were so old, they were in their 40s. And um, I meant to tell you, my first impression of Alan when I went in, menopause. First, first thing in my mind, oh, my God, menopause. And you know what? The joke's on me now. You know, because these youngins come in and look and go, oh, look at these old girls, and I'm one of them, so ha, 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 ha. What goes around comes around. Anyway, I began to pal around with Ed and Joan and Bill, and I began to be Sherry without a man. And that was wonderful. I went two years so, but um, I, I and I learned to be me, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And um, the other thing that happened to me was eventually we had some more Alan on people coming to these meetings. And this woman said to me one Sunday morning, "What are you doing after after the meeting today?" And I said, "Well, I'm going home." And and she said, "Well, we're having a committee meeting for an Alan on breakfast. Would you like to come?" And I said, "I've well, got nothing else to do, so okay." And so I went and I listened and they, we have a huge meeting on the Virginia Peninsula and about 500 people come. It's a breakfast meeting. I mean, breakfast, dinner, no, <laughs> breakfast event, that's it, meeting. And so I got involved with the Peninsula uh, breakfast. And um, the first year they let me read the steps and I screwed them up. Oh, my God. I was, I, I was so nervous. I actually read them sort of out of order. Good Lord. <laughs> anyway. Um, but. They also fed you at these meetings, and that was really nice. See, I was convinced at that time that on Sunday afternoons, everybody was sitting down to Sunday dinner and having, you know, roast beef and gravy, and I was home alone, and, and, um, and I wasn't alone. And um, I later found out that not everybody was having roast beef and gravy. They were having turkey and gravy. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I began to get involved in service, and I began to get better faster. That pamphlet, when I got busy, I got better, brilliant. It's a brilliant piece of literature, and it's true. If your if your um, recovery has slowed down a little bit, start doing service because you will be astonished. <laughs> when you're working with the Alanons, you have to have more recovery at that point, or you'll lose your mind. But um, <laughs> service allows you to meet so many more people and and talk to so many more people and to do so many different things. And I began to be really active in service, and I began to get better. Well, my friends Ed, Bill, and Joan had a friend, and his name was Doug. And, and Ed, Bill, and Joan thought that Sherry and Doug would make a good couple. So they tried to set us up. What they didn't tell me was Doug already had a girlfriend. But I went out on a date with Doug, and, um, and it was okay. And I really thought he was very handsome. And he, Doug, when you meet my, my husband, is very, um, he radiates integrity. He, he, just, he's, he just, he oozes integrity. He's, I respected him. But... This girlfriend was a bit of a problem, and I figured, you know, and she was in AA too, and I thought, you know, I did not go through two years um, trying to get better to get myself hooked up with this guy. So, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to do this. And I was telling Richard, I went to an AA convention, and God, he and his girlfriend were in the room next to me. Talk about you had to let go, and like, God, good grief. <laughs> there they were. And so um, I... I decided this is not what I need. I'm going to let Doug go. And I had never really done that before. And it, and it worked, except, and I tell this because it's funny, um, because I really didn't let go completely. This, this Sunday morning meeting was a breakfast meeting. And they had a buffet. And they had fruit on the buffet. And I would sit there with my plate of fruit. And Doug would sit silent, like over there. And I'd be over here. 
and I began to eat my fruit in a very strange, provocative manner. <laughs> I never touched a banana, but I did wonderful things with strawberries. <laughs> and a gentleman who was later in our wedding came up to me one day and he said, I don't think he's noticing, but you've got to stop because I can't concentrate. <laughs> Manipulation. I'm clever. I can be really clever sometimes. That was one of my better, my better tricks. Didn't get his attention, by the way. But anyway, after several months, Doug didn't have a girlfriend anymore, and Doug showed up. And now, he wanted to have a relationship. And I knew that with Doug, I couldn't play any of the games I had played before. First of all, because I had been really working my program, and I, didn't, I was not going to sacrifice how far I'd come. And second of all, Doug had all this integrity and respect, and I knew he would not put up with my crap. Now, at this point, I'd had 11 years in Al-Anon, and he'd had two years of sobriety. He was ready to get married, and i got to tell you, I was not. So he wanted to talk. I mean, we started dating in December, and he started talking marriage, like, on New Year's Eve. Typical alcoholic. I want what I want, and I want it now, you know. And, and I said, you know, um, I'm, I'm just not ready. So, you know, I, my birthday's in June, and maybe if we're still doing well, maybe we could talk about, we'll talk about it in June. Well, in February was the AA assembly, and so I went to the AA assembly with him, and um, he proposed at the assembly, which should tell you how our lives were going to go. Um, didn't listen to me one damn bit. Uh, and, and I said yes. And I remember going to bed that night and thinking, this is never going to happen. Because, see, it's back to that bad things, good people, good things. Good things don't happen. Things like that don't happen to people like me. And I remember telling this to a lovely lady in Al-Anon who I adored, and she was always kind to me, and she got right nasty. And she said, Sherry, for God's sake, just keep on going. It's going to be fine. So we kept on going. And um, up, I was up north. I am up north. Down south. <laughs> I'm all confused. Um, in New Jersey, we have large weddings, large weddings. So we began, my parents were thrilled. And my dad and mom, I thought they would never live without me home. When I moved away from home, I was sure they were going to kill each other. And you know what? Mom was going to Al-Anon. Dad was baking cookies and brownies for the Al-Anon meetings and making pictures of lemonade. And he would take them to the meetings with her. Still drinking, but loved Al-Anon ladies. They loved him. <laughs> and he met Doug. And Doug loved sports. And my dad loved sports. They, you know, Doug no longer drank, but he sure did like it when he did. And, and they, were, they should have gotten married. They got so along so well. And we're in the middle of having this really, really great um, wedding plans, and it's getting bigger and bigger. And um, I just let my mother loose. I let her go. And, you know, she's just having herself a good old mother of the bride time. And um, my parents went on a, on, a, on a trip. And when they came back, we went up. It was September, and the wedding was in April. And uh, my dad wasn't looking so good. And I was really worried. And I, I just begged him to go to the doctor. And I said to him, Daddy, I, I need you to... to Get well. I need you to get well. And when he had gone back drinking, I had, um, after I moved down to Virginia, I had, my sponsor I had at the time, I said to her, I really want, really want to tell him how much he means to me because he had been very sick and he had stayed sober after he would gotten sick. He stayed sober about six to nine months. And I said, I just really want to tell him how much it means to me to have my father sober. And she goes, well, you can tell him once, but twice, but, but do it good because twice is controlling. So, you know, pick your time good. 
So he had a beautiful garden, and we were in his garden, his vegetable garden, and I said to him, Daddy, I just, I love you sober. I really hope you will continue to stay sober. And I said, and I really, you know, I really want you to to go get help. And he said, baby, I know where to go to get help. But he didn't. But what I did was I wrote him a letter. And I wrote him this beautiful letter, and I put it in a card, and I told him in that letter all the things he had done for me and all the things he had meant to me and how very much I loved him, and I sent it off. Anyway, um, we left after that, that weekend, and um, my father went to the doctor, and there was a spot on his lung. Actually, it was more like a golf ball on his lung. And my father was a sergeant in the Army, and he smoked camels without filters, and I knew this wasn't good. And so he went in for a biopsy, and I prayed all day. And when I got home that night, I called my mom to find out how my dad did, and my dad died the day of the biopsy. And um, I lost my greatest hero. And I remember, though, thinking when she said to me, I called and I said, how's it going? And she said, it's not good. He has passed away. I remember thinking if my father died, I could not exist. And the first thing that came into my head was, oh, my God, I'm still breathing. So, you know what you do, you call your sponsor, and he called, and Doug called his sponsor, and, you know, half a dozen AA and Alan people come over and they pack you up when we went home. And, and I didn't know how I was going to get through this. I just didn't know how I was going to get through it. But let me tell you how good my, my higher power is when I choose to call God. My God is so good. My dad had three dreams. He wanted to take a cruise. He wanted to see Alaska, and he loved to fish. So three weeks before my dad died, my parents had gone on a two-week cruise to Alaska where he caught a 48-pound keeper salmon. And see, God gave my dad all his dreams, and that meant all the world to me. The night of the viewing, I had no idea how I was going to walk through it, and I called my sponsor, and she said, and it was, I, I didn't realize it was Friday night, and she said, you know, right about when the viewing starts is the time of our meeting, we'll be praying for you. And when I got in that door, I knew I could get through it because I could feel them praying for me. It's that power you feel when we hold hands and we say the prayers at the end. It's that power that you get. And I think you've had two ways of going through life. You can go through life alone thinking you can do it all yourself. Or you can go through life with people who love you and share the happiness and the pain together. It's a whole lot better that way. So, the wedding went on, and um, it gave my mother something to look forward to, and it, it, it continued to get bigger anyway. But um, we, we had a, an AA Al-Anon wedding. Um, my husband, I have to tell you about my husband's sponsor. When I met Joe, Joe, um, was, he was born and raised in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and he um, became a citizen of the United States, and he was a sergeant in the Army. When I met Joe, Joe had a purple nose, really bad teeth. And he wore leisure suits in 1990. <laughs> and they would sit Joe by the front door of the AA meetings and say to newcomers, keep on drinking and you'll look like that. <laughs> Joe's nose is real purple, or was. Joe has since married a, late, a lovely lady in Al-Anon. She threw out the leisure suits. He got his teeth fixed. He's looking real good, okay? And the reason he and my husband became, he, he became my husband's sponsor was one time in the early days of Doug's sobriety, he mentioned loving Mad Dog 2020, which 
for you Canadians is Mogan David. It comes in a flat bottle. The better to steal it by sticking it in your pants, you know. And and it's fortified wine, and it's just disgusting. But alcoholics, oh God, they love it. And um, Doug mentioned he liked MD Twenty Twenty, and Joe perked up, and they were like, you know, a love song calling together. <laughs> they called themselves the Connoisseur of the Grape. And um, I said to Doug when he proposed, oh, God, does that mean Joe has to be the best man? And he said, love me, love my sponsor. <laughs> and I love Joe because, see, Doug's sobriety isn't my problem. Doug's sobriety is Joe's problem. I trust Joe with my husband's sobriety. I trust Joe so much that Joe's my husband's godfather, my daughter's godfather. Holy crap, it went from does he have to be best man to would you be my daughter's godfather? <laughs> Anyway, so we had this wonderful, wonderful wedding, and everybody thought it was really great, and we thought we were going to, and, and everybody called us like the prince and princess of, of AA and Al-Anon, and you know, we were going to go home, and we had a fight, we were going to read the big book together, and read the steps, and it would be just lovely, it was just going to be tripping along down the path, well, you know, life is life, and it doesn't go like that, um, and, and so... Um, he continued his meetings, and I continued mine, and we worked our pro- we work our program together. But I got to tell you, we are certainly not the prince and princess of AA and Alamon, and I hated to break that to people. But anyway, um, I had a violent temper, and I was um, when I used to move out of an apartment and move into a new one in, in in Virginia. My dad, mom would come down, and my dad was just he could fix anything, and he would always have to spackle the walls or a door because I was very good at. I, I punched holes in things, which hurt like hell, but it gave me immense satisfaction. And the last apartment I moved out of before I met Doug, my father came down, and he's, like, looking around. You know, and there's no holes in the walls. And, and, and Dad was like, what's going on? I said, I'm working my program. You know, no more spackle necessary. I'm working out on them. Um, and, and we had talked about um, having a child. And, you see, before I met Doug, I didn't think I should have children because I was afraid I'd hurt a child. I was afraid my temper would hurt a child. But I realized that I had a good husband and he could be a good father. So maybe we could try a trial child. Now, I'm not sure what they are, but I was going to have a trial child. And everybody was real worried about me because, you know, I was like 34. It's going to take me forever to, have, to get pregnant. And I took off my shoes and I was pregnant. And, um, and all the guys in AA took credit for it. It was like, oh, my God. Because they're like, we got Doug sober, so we're responsible for that child, you know. That's that's our baby. That's our baby, you know. And uh, and it's a good. And I was terrified. I you know I I do I can walk through any hell you put me through. But when things are good, that's really hard for me because I'm just waiting for the shit to hit the fan. And I'm sure I am so always so sure I am not worthy of good things happening to me. I swear to you, I thought, and I fight that to this day. I got on the plane <laughs> one time. I got on the plane. And I didn't do it this, this bad this time. But one time I'm on a plane to go somewhere to speak, and I thought the plane's going to crash because people like me don't get to go to Florida to speak. That just doesn't happen, you know. It's like God doesn't make junk, and I'm not junk. And I, why not something nice for me? So it's a good thing babies come whether you're afraid or not because along came Lindsay, and she is an incredibly great child. And Karen and I have been bonding about our Lindsays. <laughs> and um, my business partner says she's the first um, legitimate living version of human cloning. She is just like me. And God help us. But anyway, um, she's so cute. She grew up in, in the programs. And when she was riding her tricycle, we say, Lindsay, where are you going? I'm going to a meeting. You know? <laughs> I had an incident happen where my home group decided that babies were not allowed. And that was very painful to me. And um, I'm so happy to see that, 
that our young lady here is, 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 is a part of Al-Anon because there is no age restriction in Al-Anon. There's an age restriction for Alanti, not for Al-Anon. But the AA said, give her to us, we'll take care of her. Because see, it's more important that you get to a meeting than if there's a baby in a meeting. Let me tell you, I fixed that real quick when I got to be delegate. Tell, tell you that. <laughs> I fixed that. <laughs> and the funny thing about Lindsay is if, if it's a bad drunk with, a, with, with just the most low-bottom drunk story, oh, God, does she love them. The worst, I mean, Joe and her intertwined. Um, you know, if they were a scoundrel to the 99th degree, that's her favorite drunk. I mean, she, you know she's in our program, and, you know, we're not so sure about the other one yet, but you know she's in our, our program. Um, the funny part was, is I continued in service, and when I was pregnant, um, I went to assembly. I was GR, and I went to assembly, and the delegate at that time, he convinced me I should stand for DR. And he said, oh, my wife and I had two kids while I was delegate. I forgot. He was not pregnant. <laughs> I was. And th- to say how sick my area is, they, they, my district is, they, they voted me in as DR, silly people. And um, so I became DR. And, and Lindsay on the rocker went to all the, you know, all the district meetings. And, um, and it was wonderful. I just loved it. I loved service. I absolutely loved it. And I thought about, again, I, I thought about, you know, maybe, um, maybe doing, you know, standing for um, alternate delegate. You know, kind of like being a trial child. I'd do a trial delegate thing. I'd be an alternate delegate. But my sponsor, this slinky little creature I have for a sponsor now, she is just a beautiful lady. And she comes in and she's very Southern. And Juanita will let herself on the bed in assembly and say, Sherry, honey, I think that you can do this. I know you can. I'll help you. And she can get anybody to do anything just talking like that. It's just... <laughs> and we put in for the um, regional service seminar, and I tell you, I don't always say this in my talk, but we put in for the, regional ser- the Southeastern Regional Service Seminar, and she said, I know you can do this. And I knew we were going to get it because it happened to be the year the WSO moved to Virginia Beach. And the office, WSO office is 21 miles from my home, door to door. And um, if you ever have an opportunity to visit WSO, it is a spectacular building. The architect, it's not fancy. The architect found out about the, the uh, circle and the triangle, and he incorporated that theme throughout the building. It is a beautiful building. And um, so anyway, we did get the RSS, and, and the deal is if you're the chairperson of the RSS, uh, WSO will pay for your registration at the immediately preceding RSS, the one that's coming right before yours. And I really wanted to go, but I couldn't afford the airfare, so I couldn't go. And that RSS was in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And I missed that. So now you know why I wanted to come back. I had missed opportunity one. By God, I'm doing this one. So anyway, we did the RSS, and boy, that's that's a service experience. And uh, And so... I began to, to meet, God kept putting people in my life that had been delegates or were going to be delegates or were, were delegates, and they all kept saying, you know, you need to stand for delegate. And I kept saying, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do that. I really don't know if I can do that. And, um, but I did. And, um, I, and I got elected delegate. And now I'm really scared because I'm thinking, they don't know who they just voted into office. Holy crap. You know, and... Um, I'm not worthy to do this because only like people who can spout everything out of all of the literature, the people that go, oh, that's page 71, you know, or can do the service, that's page 42. I'm not that kind of person. I I, I just have no business doing that. I was so afraid they'd find out. And lo and behold, I got there and there's, um, when you go to conference, there's a, 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 
an orientation for new delegates. And I sat down at this table with other new, de- new delegates, all who looked equally as you know scared as I did. And I looked around. It was almost like in slow motion. And I looked around at all those people, and I thought, oh, my God, how far I've come. My higher power has brought me so far. Nothing to do with me. All to do with him. I was so amazed. And I will tell you, no matter what they say, conference does work. And um, the process works. I was so impressed with conference. And I was—I loved being delegate. I got to meet people from all over the country. I met Marge from your province. She's one of my favorite people. I love her to pieces. I've—I have just been blessed with so many human beings that have crossed my life and have made my life better for having known them. And—and and I just felt so special um, getting to know these people. I loved it. I really did. And I later on um, became chairman of my area after that. And then um, I also was um, public outreach coordinator for a while. I love service. I believe in service with all my heart. I believe that if I know that you've had any bit of experience that I have, I need to tell you that if I can make it, you can make it. Um, I am very open about what I've been through. Um, my husband always says he was never secret being a drunk, but now he's trying to be secret being recovered. That doesn't work for him, and it doesn't work for me. I was never secret being an idiot. So I, you know, I'm still an idiot, but I'm just, you know, a little more recovering idiot. Um, my husband and I have been through ups and downs. He had a certain problem that I decided to make my own. I was sure it was my fault, and I spent a lot of time trying to fix it. And I went to see um, my sponsor, and she said to me, this is not your problem, this is his. You've, you have forgotten you were not in charge of his life. And so I have allowed my husband to fall around his program just the way I, I fall around mine. And it can be painful. And sometimes I'll say, why is he such an ass? And my sponsor will say, he's an alcoholic, remember? And I forget, I have never seen Doug drunk. So I forget, I totally forget that he battles the disease of alcoholism. And I shouldn't do that. He picked up his 22-year sobriety chip on the 27th of September. As far as I'm concerned, that is the biggest miracle you can ask for, is to have a day of sobriety. You know, it's just an amazing thing. I remember getting married and looking at, his whole side, all the guys were in AA. Two of the women in my side, um, two were my best friends from childhood. One was in Al-Anon and one was in AA and Al-Anon. And I remember my wedding day thinking, for one more day, we've triumphed over the disease. One more day, we, the victory is ours. And I am amazed by any person that stays sober. Just amazed. It is a miracle. And I am amazed by any one of us that have walked through this program of Al-Anon and gotten better. It is a miracle. I believe firmly in miracles. Um, I always, I, I like to end this way. It's a new, new part of my life. Um, I found God in the, in, in the program of Al-Anon. And I, um, I have this really great little church I belong to, and I make no bones about it. I tell them I would not be here with you if I weren't in the, in the uh, walls and the rooms of Al-Anon. I could not do that. God came to me through Al-Anon, not through church. But now I have this really great little church. And in 2001, they asked me to, um, almost dance time. I'm wrapping it up here, kids. Um, my minister asked me to go with him um, and, and a group of people on a mission trip. And I thought, I can't do that. I'm not a good enough Christian. I'm never a good enough anything to do what you asked me to do. So, And I knew I wasn't a good enough Christian. I just couldn't do it. And, uh, and, but my grandparents owned a travel agency, and they used to travel a lot in the Southwest, and they would bring me back things, and I was intrigued by, um, by the Native American culture. And then I dated a police officer. You know, it's really funny. When I lived at home with my dad, an alcoholic, 
the guys I dated were not alcoholic. They were really actually healthy, well-adjusted men. It was when I got away from my alcoholic, I had to pick up a few you know, crazy people. But um, I dated a cop for about three years, and he had a friend who had a Native American uh, jewelry gallery, and God bless him, he gave me lots of jewelry, and, and um, I kept it all. Uh, and I, and I love that. And then in my work, um, I, I produce documentary videos, and I've had the opportunity to work with five tribes. And so it began to think that maybe I had something to contribute. You know, maybe I could add a little bit because I had done some work with Native Americans. So I went on the Navajo mission, sure that they were going to find out I wasn't supposed to be on that team because, my God, I am certainly not good enough. And we drove 32 hours straight from Virginia to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Don't do that, by the way. Don't do that. That is so dumb. And we would have not stopped in Albuquerque except the mission team was threatening to kill the minister, so he had to stop. But um, I was certain, certain, certain. And on that 32-hour drive, I had, a, I had three or four other people in my car, and it was a young couple. And lo and behold, Lisa's father was in that Sunday morning meeting that I've been going to all those years. And I knew her dad well. And so I share with her about Al-Anon, and she could really use it, but she's chosen not to. That's her, that's, that's her prerogative. But we talked about her dad at length. And so when we got to the Navajo Reservation, as a lot of people know, um, I don't know in Canada, I'm not going to speak for your Native American people, but my, my Native American people in my country um, have a huge problem with alcoholism. Huge, huge, huge. And I never gave that a thought. But what Lisa started doing was she started talking to this woman, and she started bringing him to me. And... Um, I would sit and talk to these women, and I always bring my three um, daily read. I don't think I don't think this one, the hope for today, that one wasn't out yet. But I had my ODAT, and I had my um, courage to change, and I always have lots of literature stuffed in in it, you know. And I gave away everything. I did not give away my ODAT. I've had that since 1980. I couldn't do it. But I gave away my courage to change. I gave away all the literature I had. It was like the five loaves and two fishes. I kept trying to make them like multiply, and um, and I talked to these women. And um, I don't know anything, if anything came of it, but I'll tell you this. The minister's wife came to me and she said, send me more literature and I'll make sure it gets to them because they'll go talk to the minister's wife. So I did. So the next year, we were going to somewhere in absolutely nowhere, Utah. And um, <laughs> absolutely nowhere. We were 65 miles from a gas station. So, um, and we were back on the reservation, not, not Navajo. We went for five years at the Navajo reservation. And um, I called my friend Mary Lou at WSO, she and I are really good friends. You should. Here's a moment of a paid political announcement. You should really have Mary Lou speak. She's wonderful. Anyway, and that's the that. But anyway, I called her and I said, "What should I take?" And she goes, "You know what? Guess what we got? It was like two weeks away." And she said, "Guess what we got coming out next week?" And I said, "What?" She said, "We have the new pamphlet, Alan Alice for um, Native American and Aboriginal peoples." And I went, "Oh, ooh. it's one of those God moments." And she said, "How about we send you a whole bunch of those?" I said, "That would be just great." So I called the woman who was coordinating the teams out in uh, Utah, and I said, Where, give me a, uh, an address they can ship it to. And she said, oh, God, it takes forever to get here, two, three, four weeks sometimes to get out here. And I said, well, just tell me where to ship them, and they'll get there when they get there. Well, by God, they got there in three days. And the minister's wife was so excited. She was so excited to get them. And so we gave them out. Um, I have found that what I do with the people there is exactly what I do here in Al-Anon. I try to live the program in a way that perhaps you'll, you'll see that I'm trying to work it. Not perfectly, but I'm trying to work it. And when I go out there, I try to tell them that they have a higher power that loves them and they're worthwhile. And I try to let them know that if it works for me, it can work for them. That's all I can do. Um, 
We are now going to the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. We are in Browning, Montana. We're about 17, 18 miles from the Canadian border. Um, I called, we decided for a lot of reasons to change. Um, nothing to do with the Navajo people, but with the people that were running the missions. And um, I was calling various people, and I called this lady in Montana, the minister's wife, and she was such a funny lady. And she and I talked and talked and talked for months before we left. I, oh, by the way, the minister resigned from leadership two years after we started going, and I now lead the team. Um, and I have learned leadership through Al-Anon. She sat down with me and, 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 and with my team and her husband, and, and they decided to tell us about how they came to be there, and she proceeds to tell me that they met their first year of sobriety in AA in North Carolina, and I almost dropped my teeth. I mean, it was like, oh, my God. And I looked at her and said, I have spent so many years trying to stop being attracted and loving people like you. No wonder I thought you were such a cutie pie. You're an alcoholic. I just love alcoholics. And, uh, and, and, that's, and, and we work with children out there. We work with a lot of children, and, and I still talk with the women out, out in, in, Black, in the Blackfeet Reservation. My dear friend, um, her name um, was Sue Ellen, and uh, the, al- the alcoholic minister's wife, and um, they were coming back to North Carolina because, unfortunately, the winters and the darkness of Montana really affected her badly and her depression badly, and she was killed in a car accident. And I thought tonight when I got to speak, I'm going to do this for my, for my beloved Sue Ellen because she meant so much to me. Um, I know that I will, if my daughter becomes either an alcoholic or if she needs to be in these, in these rooms of Alan, which she does, I know that I can't fix her because I'm her mom and I'm too close. I have an aunt that has asked me over and over, haven't you gotten cured yet? Why don't you give it up? Well, you see, um, your kids might need me, and I know my, my daughter may need you, so I need you to be here for my daughter because I can't fix her, and I hope you can. And um, I'll be there for your kids, too. That's the whole point of the program. That and, my God, if I get out of this program, I'll find me another live, active alcoholic, and it will not be pretty. Um, I like to close with something that's not conference-approved, but it's Mother Teresa, so how bad can it be? Um, <laughs> This is Mother Teresa's business card, and I saw this um, one time, and I said, that is so amazing. And this is what Mother Teresa's business card said. The fruit of silence is prayer. The fruit of prayer is faith. The fruit of faith is love. The fruit of love is service. And the fruit of service is peace. Thank you so much for having me. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and in our lives this week. So what's going on in my life? Uh, A couple of things that I wanted to mention. I know I've been talking over the last year about taking care of myself, taking care of my body. And I set a goal last year to be able to run 5K in 30 minutes or less. I did not achieve that goal last year. I came very close to it in October when I ran it in 31 minutes and then Managed to slack for the the next couple of months and and wasn't able to do it. But a couple of weeks ago, I was at the gym, I was on the elliptical machine, and I just felt like I could keep going, and I did, and I managed. 
I did 5K as measured by the elliptical machine in 29 minutes and 30 seconds, and I felt really good about that because the program tells me that it's progress, not perfection, that I do things one one step at a time, one day at a time, and that when I don't when I don't reach a particular place where I thought I ought to be by a particular time, I keep on going, I keep on trying, and and I have to thank Alanon for for getting me there. At my step meeting on Saturday, we're at step nine, and as it would happen, the reading from the book Paths to Recovery had a sentence in it that. I don't recall ever reading before. I think they must have added it to the book between the last time I read it and this time. Ha <laughs> ha. And sometimes it seems that way. I don't know if you've had the experience of picking up a little literature and and suddenly finding a sentence that, that you never saw before that speaks to you today. That sentence was about not being able to change what we did, but working to mitigate the consequences to make better the effect of the harm that we had on on other people. And I mean, I know that's what step nine is about, but I had never had it expressed in that particular way before. I also reflected on the question of whether the fact that somebody that I used to work with at work, who is now in another work group is seemingly cold to me, whether that's about me, whether that's about them or whether it's totally imagined. And do I have amends to make for the way in which the I don't know what my part was exactly in, in the way that that previous work group ended, but because, of course, everything's all about me all the time, at least that's how it feels in my, in my codependent heart. I'm sure that I did something right there that, that made her mad at me, and that's why she's not talking to me anymore. And I think that's not true. So, but it, the question came up in the context of step nine, because if I did harm, then amends are owed but I don't even know if I did harm. And so how do I start with that? And I think I might start by just next time I encounter her in the appropriate setting asking, Hey, are we okay? And if the answer to that is yes, then I can let go of all my codependent worrying. And if the answer is, well, no, then we can talk about it. Seems like a good way forward. So that's, that's my, my recovery thoughts for this week, along with the expression of the many forms of love that, I heard about uh, in church on Sunday. If you want to join the conversation here, if you want to share your own experience, strength, and hope, maybe share your Alateen story if you have one, because I'm putting, working on putting together an Alateen, a couple of Alateen episodes if I can, you can call. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can do that right now. You just hit pause on your podcast player and call if you want to. You can also use a voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at the recovery.show. And we'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions or suggestions for topics. Our website, which is the recovery.show, which is, as I said, this is a new, shorter address for the website. It's still also at therecoveryshow.com. If if you've got that one memorized, just keep using it. It's fine. But our website has all the information about the show, which includes notes for each episode and occasional blog. And if you can't remember the phone number, you can't remember the email address, just remember therecovery.show. And in the menu at the top of the page, click on contact and all the information about how you can share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions with us is, is right there on, on that contact page. 
Got a couple of voicemails this week. The first one from Lorianne. Yeah, this is Lorianne. I am leaving a response to the uh, person who called in and or wrote in, I should say, um, having an issue with a, a sponsor acting inappropriately, accusing her of thirteen stepping someone in the group. Um, I actually, I, I do have an experience like that, and I hope if I share it, it might be helpful. Um, it was actually uh, about seven or eight years back when I first started my program, which um, did originate in CODA, and it was with my CODA sponsor. And um, though she didn't make a scene in front of the whole group, she made a scene. She basically sabotaged my name like to our entire home group. And um, years later, I mean, I, I'm, I, I let it go. I saw immediately I sought out sponsorship through someone else. What that new sponsor had told me was, um, and it, it was through a note that um, the person sent me. She said, burn it and don't ever look at it again. Let it go. I did that, and I, I didn't stop going to meetings. And uh, she did slander my name, and I I was actually developing a, a, a friendship, which was evolving into a relationship with someone. And she, this person was actually married. She was jealous. And she, like I said, she slandered my name. But years later, what I, when I look back, I, I kind of have observed people that were in the group giving me responses even to this day that kind of validated that no, she was not appropriate. And to me, the the lesson, in short, is um, you know just remembering that we're all in recovery for a reason. Sponsor or not, you know, we all have stuff that we're dealing with. You know, knowing when to to let go of the uh, the sponsor sponsor relationship, when to seek out help from other people in the group, it it all kind of comes together. And um, it, it was a painful experience, and I'm sorry for that person who's going through it. But uh, I'm glad that she hasn't given up on me. So hang in there. And I want to thank you, Laurie Ann, for, for sharing that experience with us and maybe maybe helpful to uh, people who are have found themselves in, in a situation like that. Thank you. And our friend Pat also left us a voicemail about attitudes and gratitude. Hi, Spencer and all the recovery show folks. This is Pat from the West Coast. Um, I've been having trouble sleeping lately. I have more insomnia and a lot more hamster headaches. And um, I have found that listening to the podcast helps me. It sounds bad, I know, but the reality is that because these are voices that are familiar to me and I put it on really low, it's really soothing and relaxing and calming, and it gets me off whatever topic I'm hamster-heading about. Last night, though, I couldn't stop the, the spinning in my trail in my mind. I started listening to your gratitude episode episodes from way back near the beginning of the program. Gosh, that's a great episode. And I never would have thought that I worrying about my son's future, is he going to get a college education, is he going to be happy with what he's doing in his life so many years from now. I should ask him, what does he want to be doing? Is he afraid? What's he afraid of? Just going down this whole path of what you know, what he, what he is not doing and what he has not done so far and what he may not be in the future. And listening to that gratitude episode was just so right on. 
And it really got me thinking about all the things that grateful that to, I have to be grateful for with my son. I mean, he is not an addict. He did not so far go down the path that his father did, and I'm so grateful for that. He's a hard worker. He's a good man. He's supporting himself. Uh, he's, he's got all these great characteristics and tributes, and he's having a good life as it is, and he's enjoying himself. So I just, it was it was so funny. The whole episode is all about attitude and putting things in perspective and being grateful for what we have. And I never thought of gratitude as a way, as a tool for changing my perspective about a situation that I'm looking at negatively. And ultimately what it came down to is that if I'm looking at a situation negatively, I practice gratitude around that person, that situation, that then it really does change the attitude. It was pretty amazing. So just as always, this show gives me so many wonderful, unique tools and ways of incorporating Al-Anon program in my life. Incredibly grateful for each, all the work that you do, Spencer, and for everyone who has the courage to participate. Okay, thanks so much. Have a great week. Bye bye. Thank you, Pat. It is it is true as as I have found as you've found that by changing my attitude, I can see things in a different way, um, and I can find my way to serenity and happiness, which is a goal. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to the Recovery Show, but we do have expenses which run about sixty dollars a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Nicole did. And thank you again, Nicole, and everybody else who has contributed over the last years. And thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecovery.show, or just listening. We are here for you. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We did not talk about a problem we are facing today. Feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. Understanding love and peace growing you one day at a time.